Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. Thank you for joining us on this first podcast episode today. Our podcast is called Stand By My Servants. That comes from Doctrine and Covenants, section 6, verse 18, where Oliver Cowdery is instructed to stand by my servant Joseph faithfully in whatsoever difficult circumstances he may be for the world's sake. Today we have a great opportunity to stand by the Lord's servants. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity and welcome it and relish it. You know, the purpose of this podcast is going to be to fortify, to edify, to provide information and to help strengthen testimonies of our living prophets. In fact, I'm going to call this episode, Follow the Prophet. And although we'll be talking about our 15 modern apostles and prophets, in their lives and their teachings. Today, I feel like it's very important to just start with the doctrinal teachings and the concepts of why following the prophet is still important. Now, I like to joke with people and tell them that Ephraim Hanks is one of my favorite relatives. He's really not. I wish I was related to Ephraim Hanks, but I'm, I'm, I'm not. I was a missionary years ago, and in my mission uh, Dale Hanks was my mission president, so I feel like I'm connected in some way. But I just think Ephraim Hanks was a really interesting character in church history, and I love reading about him and studying his life. But he was one of those early pioneers, uh, but his pioneering continued long after his arrival in the Salt Lake Valley. Now, one morning, it was in 1848, Brigham Young drove to where Ephraim was building an adobe house inside the old fort in Salt Lake City. Looking over that completed foundation, Brigham quizzed Ephraim concerning the thickness of the rock wall, and asking Ephraim how thick the walls were of his home, Ephraim replied that they were eight inches thick. President Brigham Young then said, tear it down and build it twice as thick, and then promptly just drove away before Ephraim could even respond. To do as President Young requested would mean hauling in more rock and doing twice as much work as Ephraim felt was necessary, but he did it. Ephraim widened the foundation to 16 inches, and just think of all the work that would have entailed to go back and to start over again on your home. A month later, a heavy rainstorm caused widespread widespread flooding in the valley, resulting in considerable damage, and Ephraim's reinforced foundation of walls stood firm against the flood preventing a possible collapse of his entire home. In fact, many other homes in the valley were not so fortunate. From this experience and others, Ephraim learned that when the prophet spoke, he would listen. In fact, in another edition of or rendition of that story, as written by Sidney Hanks, a relative of Ephraim, in the book called Scouting for the Mormons on the Great Frontier, Sidney added that a few days when the water had drained out, They finished laying the rafters, and Ephraim drove in the nails to the tune of We Thank Thee, O God, for a Prophet. Now, there's more. There's more to Ephraim Hanks than just that story. Not long after that incident, 
with Brigham Young. Ephraim met the Mormon leader at a dance in Salt Lake. Again, Brigham offered counsel to Ephraim. This time Ephraim was to go home and shave his face. Like many men of his day, Ephraim wore a beard almost to his waist. Now, I don't know about you, but I know a few people with beards. And one of the things I've learned about a lot of people with beards is they're super proud of their beards. In fact, years ago, I had a neighbor that had an awesome beard. Before I said anything about that, I told this neighbor friend, I said, hey, you know what? Your kids are awesome. Uh, I was the bishop of the ward at the time. His children had sung in primary that day, and I just wanted him to know that I thought his children were great kids. He didn't even respond. He just kind of looked at me and walked off. But a couple of weeks later, I saw him in the gym, and I said to him, you know what? Your beard is awesome. And to that, he said, you know what? Thank you so much. That is a great compliment. Anyway, I've noticed that those, in fact, I even know people who have who have been offered jobs in the church educational system or at BYU and have turned them down. This was years ago when the policy may have been different because they did not want to shave their beard off. So having a beard in Ephraim Hanks' day down to your waist was probably a significant part of your identity. And so when Ephraim bears that beard and Brigham Young instructs him to go home and shave it off, that had to be such a difficult decision for Ephraim. But about an hour later, Ephraim returns to the dance without a beard, still wearing, though, a mustache. Not satisfied with his appearance, Brigham Young indicated with a sweep of his hand across Ephraim's face that he wanted a clean shave. Ephraim leaves the dance a second time, goes home and shaves his entire face. It was perhaps this type of obedience to counsel that prompted Brigham Young to once say at Ephraim's funeral, Here was a man who was always ready to lay down his life for the authorities of the church as well as for the cause of Zion and her people. Now, I think of that great story in contrast to how many members of the church may feel about following counsel. And I know that in Texas years ago when we had standards at dances, at stake dances, and sometimes a youth would come in that would not be dressed in a way that met those standards, and they would be addressed, talked to, encouraged to go home and change. And I remember how many parents were just upset at at that counsel in that direction given towards their child, when here we have this great example of Ephraim Hanks being given that instruction by a prophet, and even though he probably didn't understand it or even agree with it, he just went and did it. And I know that Ephraim's life was blessed in so many great ways because of that, and so were those around him. Now, let me share with you one other experience that I think will tie all of this together to help us understand why following a prophet is so crucial. Now, these stories I'm sharing with you probably are taking place in in late 1840s, and now it's 1856. It's in the fall. And some of you who are church historians may recognize, okay, fall of 1856, really bad time for handcart companies who left late in the season and were coming across Wyoming about that time. But here in Utah Valley, where I can only imagine what it must have been like in 1856 with wonderful mountains surrounding the area with beautiful trees turning colors in the fall, that crisp feeling in the air. And in those days, Utah Lake was probably incredible. It probably looked something like Lake Tahoe or something cool like that. And Ephraim had been at the home of Gurney Brown in Draper. 
about uh, 19 miles south of Salt Lake. And this will give us an appreciation of how often these pioneers just walked or rode and f how far they went on a regular basis. And so Ephraim was fishing Utah Lake and he was staying at the home of Gurney Brown and Draper. He said in his own journal that I retired to rest quite early one night and while I lay wide awake in my bed, I heard a voice calling me by name and then saying, the handcart people are in trouble and you are wanted. Will you go and help them? I turned instinctively in the direction from whence the voice came and beheld an ordinary sized man in the room. Without any hesitation, I answered, yes, I will go if I am called. I then turned around to go to sleep, but had laid only for a few minutes when the voice called a second time, repeating almost the same words as on the first occasion. My answer was the same as before. This was repeated a third time. When I got up the next morning, I said to Brother Brown, the handcart people are in trouble, and I have promised to go out and help them. But I did not tell him of my experience during the night. I now hastened to Salt Lake City and arrived there on the Saturday preceding the Sunday on which the call was made for volunteers to go out and help the last handcart companies come in. When some of the brethren responded by explaining that they could get ready and start in a few days, I spoke at once, saying that I am ready right now. Some of you have seen that scene depicted in Ephraim's rescue. It's really awesome. The next day I was winding my way eastward over the mountains with a light wagon all alone. The terrific storm which caused the immigrants so much suffering and loss overtook me near South Pass, where I stopped for about three days with Reddick Allred, who had also come out with provisions for the immigrants. The storm during these three days was simply awful. In all my travels in the Rocky Mountains, both before and after, I've seen no worse. When the snow at length ceased falling, it lay on the ground so deep that for many days it was impossible to move wagons through it. Now, I'm going to make a long story a lot shorter by just saying this. Ephraim eventually arrives close to Martin's Cove. And when he gets to that area and the snow is up to the stirrups on his horse's saddle, there are other rescuers coming out of the area and what they're saying is there's no way you can't get in there it's impossible but ephraim just kept going and going and nothing would stop him now some of you have heard the great stories of this is where first he's able to kill a buffalo in fact he actually kills two and uh, one of those buffaloes he's going to use as a robe to stay warm that night as he settles down for the evening of course he'll, he's going to harvest some of the meat and he does the same with the second buffalo. Now, I'm going to share with you his account of what happens next. He talks about skinning and dressing the buffaloes and resuming his journey towards evening. I think was a, the sun was about an hour high in the west when I spied something in the distance that looked like a black streak in the snow. I got near to it. I perceived it moved. Then I was satisfied that this was the long-look-for handcart company led by Captain Edward Martin. I reached the ill-fated train just as the immigrants were camping for the night. The sight that met my gaze as I entered their camp can never be erased from my memory. The starved forms and haggard countenances of the poor sufferers, as they moved about slowly, shivering with cold to prepare their scanty evening meal was enough to touch the stoutest heart. When they saw me coming, they hailed me with joy inexpressible. And when they further beheld the supply of fresh meat I brought into camp, their gratitude knew no bounds. Flocking around me, one would say, oh, please, 
Give me a small piece of meat. Others would exclaim, my poor children are starving. Do give me a little. And children with tears in their eyes would call out, give me some, give me some. At first, I tried to wait on them and handed out the meat as they called for it, but finally I told them to help themselves. Five minutes later, both my horses had been released of their extra burden. The meat was all gone, and the next few hours found the people in camp busily engaged in cooking and eating with thankful hearts. And I'm sure that meat, that meal gave them much hope. A prophecy had been made by one of the brethren that the company should feast on buffalo meat when their provisions might run short. My arrival in their camp, loaded with meat, was the beginning of the fulfillment of that prediction. But only the beginning, as I afterwards shot and killed a number of buffalo for them as we journeyed along. Soon more relief companies were met, and as fast as the baggage was transferred into wagons, the handcarts were abandoned one after another until none were left. Now, Ephraim is able to then escort that group of people uh, back to Salt Lake, and what an incredible rescue as we talk about, as we talk about Ephraim's rescue. But I think there's more to that story uh, than meets the eye, so to speak, and I'd like to share it with you. It's a great statement from Elder Maxwell, Elder Neil A. Maxwell years ago, who said that a lack of obedience to the leaders will therefore mean that we will not have the precious promptings of the Spirit, which we need personally so much and so often. This potential loss would be reason enough for us to be obedient to the prophets, for apparently we cannot have one without the other. Now, think of the the association there, the correlation, that if we lack obedience to prophets, seers, and revelators, we lose the spirit. But the inverse is also true, that as we follow prophets, the Holy Ghost is with us. And I love this story that we told about Ephraim, because I believe one of the reasons why Ephraim Hanks was visited by an angel and had the Spirit accompany him in such a profound way and lead him and direct him to these handcart people was because of his obedience to living prophets. Now let me share with you what I would call a more modern rendition of, of a story of following prophets told to us years ago by Sherry Dew. She shared the experience of growing up on a farm in Kansas, and she said that we learned to drive as soon as we could reach the pedals and see over the steering wheel which for me was age 10, and so by the time I was 13, she said, I was a veteran behind the wheel. It was not therefore unusual one winter Saturday during my eighth grade year that dad called up to the house from his shop and asked if I would drive his new pickup around to the back of the farm, adding caution, Sherry, be sure to scrape the windshield. It has a thick layer of ice on it. Unfortunately, dad had not summoned me at a convenient time. It was a Saturday afternoon in January, and I was doing what I did every Saturday afternoon in January, watching the Kansas University Jayhawks play basketball. And to make matters worse, it was the fourth quarter, and the game was on the line. But I had learned from sad experience that when Dad needed help, he meant now. So in sub-zero weather, I dashed out of the house in my shirt sleeves, ran to the pickup truck, and began chipping away at a stubborn layer of ice on the windshield. Ten minutes later, when I had been able to only clear a small area, about six inches, six inches in diameter, I was both frozen and frustrated because now the game was going on without me. Then in a flash of 13-year-old wisdom, I decided it couldn't possibly hurt to drive the pickup 500 yards or so to Dad's shop. This was just the farm, for heaven's sakes. There probably wasn't another vehicle within miles. What could possibly go wrong? 
So I hopped in the pickup truck and began to inch my way around to the back of the farm. But I was basically driving blind because that tiny hole allowed for no peripheral vision, and it quickly fogged over anyway. I hadn't gone 50 yards when I felt a thud and heard a sickening, scraping sound. I slammed on the brakes, jumped out of the pickup, and immediately saw that I had hit our huge, ugly mailbox. The left mirror and trim dangled like limp appendages from the pickup body, and an ugly gash ran the length of the pickup bed. Instantly, the basketball game faded in importance. I was horrified. Panic. Beam me up, Scotty, I thought. What happened from there was probably not important other than to say that on several levels, it turned out to be a painful experience. Made all the more so because it need never have happened. Dad had warned me to scrape the windshield, but I had been impatient and focused on my own interest. Just one of the lessons I learned for that incident, not meaning to slight those about obedience and patience and selfishness, is that it's almost impossible to find your way if you can't see the way, or to stay on the path if you can't see the path. Further, when you can't see where you're going, there is no way to avoid the obstacles in front of you. We are currently on a path designed to lead us home to our Heavenly Father, but that path is littered with obstacles that can be dangerous, if not lethal. We are in trouble when our spiritual windshield is frosted over with anything. Our preoccupation with the things of this world, pride, busyness, or out-and-out sin. In other words, there are many huge, ugly mailboxes along our path, and each of them is an invitation to spiritual or temporal disaster. How often are we driving blind along the path of life, having scraped only a small clearing on our spiritual windshield, relying on our own wisdom rather than seeking counsel from those called to guide us and keep us in the center of the straight and narrow path. You know, sometimes in our own lives, that windshield, that tiny little hole in the windshield can keep us from following the prophet. What prevents us from seeing things so clearly, at least in a way, uh, a clear way that our prophets and apostles have laid out for us? Because maybe that's pride, maybe that's stubbornness, maybe it's even rebellion in some cases of why we're not willing to scrape the entire windshield and have that entire view. Now, here's an interesting perspective from Elder Harold B. Lee, who shared it in 1949. He said, Every soul today that is not hearkening unto the inspired counsel that comes from the Lord's leaders is being deceived by the power of Satan, and they are gradually coming to be in his power. Satan never goes on vacation. He never sleeps. Now, let me say that one more time, that every soul today that is not hearkening unto the inspired counsel that comes from the Lord's leaders is being deceived by Satan. See, I think a lot of us think of this differently. I think we think, well, if we don't follow the prophet, if we don't follow prophetic counsel, we just miss out on some blessings. No, presently he said that's not how it works. And then he said, if we're not following the counsel, we're actually in Satan's power. I think that's something that all of us need to consider. How about this one from Elder Packer in an address presented to regional representatives in 1990? On one occasion, he said that the brethren sometimes feel that they are losing their ability to correct the course of the church. Lily de Hoyos Anderson, quoting this, said that this should be a sobering and even a frightening thought. Our prophets receive revelation and teach us the will of the Lord, and then so often, 
with good intentions, we may completely disregard their prophetic pronouncements. And I feel that we definitely live in that day where there are fewer and fewer members of the church who are willing to follow prophets. Now let's consider some of their teachings on this subject. Elder James E. Faust years ago said that I do not believe members of the church can be in full harmony with the Savior without sustaining his living prophet on the earth, the president of the church. And if we do not sustain the living prophet, we die spiritually. President Irene said it this way, that when a prophet speaks, those with little faith may think that they hear only a wise man giving good advice. But the choice not to take prophetic counsel changes the very ground upon which we stand. It becomes more dangerous. The failure to take prophetic counsel lessens our power to take inspired counsel in the future. You know, this reminds me of a story that one of our daughters shared with us, our daughter Bethany, years ago. She was a freshman in college at one of the church schools. She was in line, if I remember right, and having a discussion with some of her fellow uh, you know, friends and, and classmates. And the, the subject at the time that came up was for the strength of youth. And one of the girls in this group made this statement that for the strength of youth is just guidelines. It's, there, there are just some things that you can kind of take it or leave it, but you don't really have to follow that stuff. They're just good ideas. And our daughter sharing that experience with us told us how disappointed she was to hear that, that someone viewed what we had taught as a family for the strength of youth, believing that it was the not only the words of our living prophets, but the words of God to our family. Uh, once again, she felt like, wow, I, I continue to meet more and more people that kind of fall in line, like President Irene said, that when a prophet speaks, many think that, think that they're just hearing an old wise man giving good advice. They're not really viewing it, as it says in Doctrine and Covenants section 1, that it's the, it's the Lord's will, that what I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken. And I excuse not myself, and though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled. And whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. And that is exactly how we want our children to view that. In fact, likewise, in a similar fashion, Elder D. Todd Christofferson said it this way, that if we ignore the Lord and his servants, we may just as well be atheists, because the end result is practically the same. And then he asked us to ask ourselves, do I see the calling of a prophet and apostle as sacred? And do I treat their counsel seriously? Or is it a light thing to me? And then Elder Christofferson asked, do our actions show that we want to know and do what the prophet teaches? He asked, do you actively study his words and the statements of the brethren? Is this something you hunger and thirst for? If so, you have a sense of the sacredness of the calling of prophets as the witnesses and the messengers of the Son of God. In that same message from Elder Christofferson, he quoted a story or shared an experience from Elder Robert D. Hales. This was the experience that Elder Hale shared. Elder Hale said that some years ago, my father, then over 80 years of age, was expecting a visit from a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles on a snowy, wintry day. Father, an artist, had painted a picture of the home of the Apostle. Rather than have the painting delivered to him, this sweet Apostle wanted to go personally to pick up the painting and thank my father for it. 
Knowing that my father would be concerned that everything was in readiness for the forthcoming visit, I dropped by his home. Because the depth of the snow, snow plows had caused a snowbank in front of the walkway to the front door. Father had shoveled the walks and then labored to remove the snowbank. He returned to the house exhausted and in pain. When I arrived, he was experiencing chest pains from overexertion and stressful anxiety. My first concern was to warn my dad of his unwise physical efforts. Didn't he know what the result of his labor would be? But then the lesson. Robert, he said, through interrupted short breaths, do you realize an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to my home? The walks must be clean. He should not have to come through a snowbank. He then raised his hand and said, Robert, do not ever forget or take for granted the privilege it is to know and serve with the apostles of the Lord. You know, unfortunately, I contrast that attitude with students I have encountered over the years who have demanded things that have been really interesting to me. For one, I've had a student or two before in our Living Prophets class on the BYU campus tell me that they don't really agree or like the talks that I'm assigning them to read and demanding that I remove those talks from out of our curriculum because they felt uncomfortable or didn't agree with what the apostle was teaching. And I've had to let those students know that no, in this Living Prophets class of all classes, we are going to face the brethren, not the world. Our task is to align ourselves with Living Prophets, not hope that they would align themselves with us. In a similar uh, fashion, Elder Lynn G. Robbins said this in General Conference, October 2014, when the people try to save face with men, they can unwittingly lose face with God. Prophets through the ages have always come under attack by the finger of scorn. Why? According to the scriptures, it's because the guilty taketh the truth to be hard. It cutteth them to the very center. The scornful often accuse prophets of not living in the 21st century or being bigoted. They attempt to persuade or even pressure the church into lowering God's standards to the level of their own inappropriate behavior. But lowering the Lord's standards to the level of society's inappropriate behavior is apostasy. You know, one of my favorite verses is in Doctrine and Covenants, section 21, verses 4, 5, and 6. Some of you may recognize that Doctrine and Covenants section 21 was given on the day that the church was organized, April the 6th, 1830. And the reason why this that's significant is because it's the very first commandment given to the church as a whole. Wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all of his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. For his word ye shall receive, as if from mine own mouth, in all patience and faith. For by doing these things, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And the Lord will disperse the powers of darkness from before you, and cause the heavens to shake for your good in his name's glory. Now I like in verse 5, it says that his word ye shall receive. And by the way, his word, or when it says, Thou shalt give heed unto all his words, he, in this case, is Joseph Smith the prophet. The very first commandment given to the church is to give heed to all the prophet's words and commandments. And that it tells us in verse 5 that, yes, you may have to take these words with patience and faith, and that applies to us today. There may be saying things that our prophets teach that may be hard for some to understand. Put it on the shelf, wrestle with it, 
engaged in the wrestle, as Sherry Dew would say. But here's the promise for following prophets. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. The Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness before you, and the heavens will shake for our good. I will take those promises, not just for me, but for my family, for my children and my grandchildren. Now, oftentimes when it comes to following the words of our prophets, we become quite selective. It's always been interesting to me to watch, not just myself, but others, when it comes to what are the commandments that we are going to keep and follow from prophets and which ones we're not. In fact, I remember uh, not too long ago being engaged in a conversation with a young college student who I was very aware that there were so many things that he wasn't paying attention to when the prophet spoke, but there was one that he was. And that one that he was, he was super vocal about. He wanted everyone to know that he was keeping that one commandment. But there's a lot more than just one. And so here's Elder Neil A. Maxwell again, that our relationship to living prophets is not one in which their sayings are a smorgasbord from which we may take that which only pleases us. We are to partake of all that is placed before us, including the spinach, and leave a clean plate. And so I ask all of us, what is the spinach in our, in our lives? And for some, it could be some of the political issues that have arisen lately. Uh, for others, it could be something as simple as, as food storage or some of the commandments or for the strength of youth or whatever. But I love the promise that we are to partake of all that is placed before us and leave a clean plate. And guess what? The prophets will cause, or the following the prophets will bless us, that the heavens will shake for our good. Now, one of my favorite themes as we talk about living prophets is I have studied their lives. There are a lot of themes. And one of them is that prophets always follow prophets. They just do. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that in 1964, President Nelson, our prophet, was made the president of the Bonneville Stake. It was unusual at the time. In those days, that there was a, there was a belief, a mistaken belief, that you just didn't call doctors to be stake presidents or even bishops because they're too busy. And so it was a, it was a, a wonderful reach into a new area to call this successful medical doctor to also be a stake president. Now, remember, that was in 1964. One year later, in 1965, our prophet, President Nelson, was given an extraordinary opportunity to assume the position of professor of surgery and chairman of the Division of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery at the University of Chicago. Included in that offer not only was a generous salary, which by the way, I've done some calculations, that generous salary today translates to about half a million dollars in today's money, but also was the arrangement to pay for the college education of all of the Nelson children. And at that time, there were nine. The Nelsons were overwhelmed by that offer, were inclined to accept it, but before accepting it, knowing that he was a stake president and that he had only been serving for one year, President Nelson made the decision that he should visit with the prophet about this situation. Now, wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love to live in a day and in an era where if you had a problem, you just go to the prophet and he can counsel you and tell you what to do? Church was a lot smaller in 1965, that's for sure. A member of the high council and the Bonneville Stake, a good friend of President Nelson's, was also President McKay's secretary. And so he was able to arrange that meeting. 
After hearing the details of the situation, President McKay closed his eyes, leaned back in his chair, and pondered on that for some time. Now, in another account, President Nelson said, some time, it was actually quite a while, he had his eyes closed for so long that President Nelson said, we actually wondered if he had passed away while he was talking with us, but President Nelson came, President McKay came out of that state rose up and said, Brother Nelson, it just doesn't feel good to me. I don't think you should go to Chicago. And that was it. A prophet had spoken and President Nelson made it clear that we intended to follow what the prophet had said. And I know that many colleagues and others told the Nelsons that they were just crazy in turning that offer down. But President McKay also promised that people will come to you from all over the world, which is what they did. And I know that President uh, Nelson in another account said that the prophet had spoken and we intended to follow. And then on another occasion, President Nelson said, I don't, I never ask myself, when does the prophet speak as a prophet and when does he not? My interest has been, how can I be more like him? Some of you may be aware of the meeting in 1978 when President Nelson was serving as a regional representative. And at that time, now President Kimball, the very person who President Nelson had operated on in 1972, where President Kimball was so sickly, and not only was the operation miraculous, but it was revealed to President Nelson at that time that he had just operated on the man who would one day be the president of the church. And now here they sit, President Nelson uh, as a regional representative and President Kimball as the president of the church. And in that meeting in 1978, just before General Conference, September, the charge was given to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And during that meeting, President Kimball emphasized that the work must carry over to China and that more church members should learn Mandarin. President Nelson took it upon himself in his spare time to learn Mandarin. In fact, he learned Chinese well enough to communicate effectively during surgery. Now, we know that there's for those who speak a foreign language from uh, from the mission field, you'll know that missionary Spanish or missionary Mandarin is probably a lot different than surgical Mandarin, right? But to learn that language well enough to speak it in surgery is so impressive to me. Not only that, but President Nelson taught heart surgery at the Shandong Medical College in China, was named an honorary professor in that school, and made relationships with officials in China that allowed the church to have the presence we now have uh, among those people. Another example of President Nelson following prophets to me is that President Monson spoke about the Book of Mormon, inviting the members of the church to read the Book of Mormon at the very next general conference, which was in October of 2017. President Nelson spoke about following the counsel that President Monson had given to read the Book of Mormon and told of the blessings that had come to him in his life for doing that, for following, following the prophet. Many years ago, President Henry D. Moyle, a member of the First Presidency, said that the older I get and the closer contact I have with the president of the church, the more I realize that the greatest of all scripture which we have in the world today is current scripture. What the mouthpiece of God says to his children is scripture, he said. On another occasion, and by the way, of course that's right. As the world is changing and has, and maybe there 
there aren't doctrines and principles and teachings in the Old Testament that pertain to exactly what we're going through today. And so the words of those prophets become crucial. President George Buchanan, one of my favorites, said that we have the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants, but all these books without the living prophets and a constant stream of revelation from the Lord could not lead any people into the celestial kingdom. Isn't that, isn't that impressive? I love that. Often we raise our hands in church meetings, almost perfunctorily, almost rotely, we raise our hands and don't really consider what it means to sustain someone. President David B. or Elder David B. Haight years ago said that when we sustain the president of the church by our uplifted hand, it not only signifies that we acknowledge before God that he is the rightful possessor of all the priesthood keys, it means that we covenant with God that we will abide by the direction and the counsel that comes through his prophet. It's a solemn covenant. Or in other words, when we raise our hands to sustain a prophet, it's actually a covenant that we are going to do exactly, exactly what he's asking us to do. You know, years ago, Sister Jeanette, Jeanette Hales Beckham was the church's General Relief Society president. And while in that calling, she shared this experience that I've thought about quite often. She said, when I was a young wife and mother, my husband spent two years in the Air Force. We lived in military housing on Long Island, New York. And while tending our young children, I often visited with neighbors who had come from all over the country. One day, as a neighbor and I were talking about our beliefs, she became curious about what was different about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I told her briefly about the restoration, and I explained that the restored Church of Jesus Christ has a living prophet today. This really seemed to pique her interest, and she wanted to know what the prophet had said. And as I started to tell her about the Doctrine and Covenants and Modern Revelation, she said, but what has he said lately? I told her about General Conference and the church, and that the church had a monthly publication with a message from the prophet. Then she really got interested. I was so embarrassed to admit that I hadn't read the current message. She concluded our conversation by saying, You mean you have a living prophet and you don't even know what he said? In that situation, I had not shown what it meant to sustain. Well, there's a lot involved when it comes to sustaining. There's no question about that. Of course, it's a covenant. And we are, we are certainly making a declaration and a promise that we're going to abide by prophetic counsel. But how do you follow prophets? How do any of us follow prophets if we don't know what they're saying? We have to come to know those things, no question about it. You know, years ago, President Harold B. Lee taught a doctrine that I believe has so much more relevance now than it ever has he said that we have some tight places to go before the Lord is through with this church and the world in this dispensation. The power of Satan will increase. We see evidence on every hand. And the only safety we have as members of the church is to give heed to the commandments that the Lord shall give through his prophet. And then he continues, you may not like what comes from the authorities of the church. It may contradict your political views. It may contradict your social views. But if you listen to these things as if from the mouth of the Lord himself, the promise is that the gates of hell hell shall not prevail against you. Now there's presently quoting back from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, 
which we taught just a few minutes ago or shared. Back in the October General Conference of 2010, Elder Patrick Kieran shared an address called Come unto me with full purpose of heart and I shall heal you. And some of you may remember that because that's where he, he shared his famous scorpion story. But I would, I would encourage all of us to reread that talk. It, it's so wonderful. But he said that last week I met a 92-year-old man who had been involved in many of the major campaigns of World War II. He had survived three injuries, one of which was a landmine blast to the jeep in which he was traveling, which killed the driver. He learned that to survive in a minefield, you must follow exactly in the tracks of the vehicle moving ahead of you. Any deviation to the right or left could and indeed prove fatal. And then he said this, our prophets and apostles, leaders and parents continually point out the track that we must follow if we would avoid a destructive blast to our souls deviating to the right or the left of the safe track ahead of us, whether because of laziness or rebellion, can prove fatal to our spiritual lives, and there are no exceptions, he said to this rule. There's no question in my mind at all that we live in a minefield today. And uh, many of us know, know that more clearly than we probably ever have. And to follow prophets with exactness is where great blessings lie for every one of us. Sherry Dew, in one of her messages, shared this story, that the story is told of Brigham Young after having urged the people in certain communities to clean up their properties, refused to go back and preach to them, saying something along these lines, that you didn't listen to me last time when I urged you to fix up your premises. The same doors are off the hinges. The same barns are unpainted. The same fences are partly fallen. I'll return when you are ready for the next sermon but you haven't done anything about the first one yet. You know, sometimes we're really reluctant to follow the counsel of our leaders, and we miss out on great blessings. You know, at the end of a general conference years ago, President Kimball quoted Luke chapter 6, verse 46, that why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I think we can apply that to prophets. As we love to sing, we thank the O God for a prophet. We love to have a prophet. We love General Conference. We love the Conference Center. But I can almost hear prophets saying that why call ye me a prophet and do not the things that I say? Are there things our, the presence of, our president of the church has asked us to do that we just haven't gotten around to yet? You know, I think of warnings our prophets have given, and here's just a great little story as we head to the finish line today. One day in Nauvoo, the prophet Joseph Smith was in the yard playing with his children Joseph and Frederick. A gentleman in a carriage drove up to the gate looking for him, greeting the prophet. The man drove his horse up, leaving the lines lying loose, or in other words, he didn't tie his horse up at all. He got out of his carriage and came up the steps of the house. Mr. Joseph said, I think you would do well to tie your horse. He might get a scare and run away and break your carriage. The gentleman, thinking that he knew best, responded, I have driven that horse for some years, and I never tie him. I am a doctor and cannot afford to tie him up at every place I call. Joseph persisted, You had better tie him up all the same. Your horse might get a scare and run away. The doctor told Joseph not to worry that there would be no problems with his horse. Entering the house, the men sat down to talk. Within moments... The horse became startled. It bolted down the street, towing behind it the carriage. A wheel struck against a post, and pieces of the carriage were scattered for a block or more. 
The doctor rushed to the street and saw the trail left by the frightened horse. He turned to Joseph and said, Well, I'll be darned if you're not a prophet. You know, our prophets do give us counsel, and they do give us guidance, and it's to help us. It's to bless our lives and to help us draw closer to the Savior, that's for sure. I'd like to conclude today with a lesson from Elder Charles C. Rich. And I love this story, and I think about it often. This recording has taken place in the summertime. And since our families moved to Utah, one of my favorite summertime traditions is going to Bear Lake and spending some time on that lake with our family. Every time we go, we share this story. It's one that I'll never get tired of. It was told by Elder Spencer J. Condy in a BYU devotional years ago. The spirit of thy will be done was strongly reflected in the life of Elder Charles C. Rich. Brother Rich was ordained an apostle in 1849 at the age of 39 after serving as a general in the Mormon Battalion. Two years later, Elder Rich was called to settle San Bernardino, California. And then in 1863, President Brigham Young asked Elder Rich to establish a settlement in the Bear Lake Valley in, in what is now southeastern Idaho. In June of 1864, the entire Rich family joined a band of nearly a thousand residents at Bear Lake and began constructing log houses with roofs made of willow branches and straw topped with thick sod. That first summer, Brother Rich proposed that the Saints celebrate the 4th of July in grand style with a homemade flag, a little brass band, and lots of dancing. But the joy of the occasion was short-lived. The very next day, the frost killed the spring wheat and sun of the growing corn. The subsequent winter was bitter cold, and the potatoes and wheat froze because of lack of storage facilities. The, the Clifton family grew so short of supplies that their children were kept in bed to conserve their strength. If you can only imagine with your family, with your children, being confined to bed for the wintertime to conserve strength. As the, as the, by the way, if it actually is frosty and freezes on July the 4th or 5th, you know that it's going to be a really cold winter, right? As the individual and collective misery of the saints increased, murmuring began to emerge from their ranks. Some of the brethren asked for a meeting with Brother Rich to discuss the possibility of abandoning the settlement for a more hospitable environment somewhere else. Elder Rich, sensing their concerns even before they were expressed, rose to his feet and addressed those in attendance. And here's what he said. Brethren, in the fall of 1863, President Young called me in his office and said, Brother Rich, I want you to go up to Bear Lake Valley and see if it could be open for settlement. And if it can, I want that you should take a company there and settle it. And that was all I needed. It was a call. I came here with a few brethren. We looked over the valley. And although the altitude was high and the snows heavy and the frost severe, there was plenty of water for irrigation purposes and plenty of fish in the lake and streams. And so with a company, I came here and settled with my family. There have been many hardships that I admit, and these we have shared together. But if you want to go somewhere else, that's your right. And I do not want to deprive you of it. If you are of a mind to leave here, my blessings go with you. But I must stay here. Even if I stay alone, President Young called me here. And I will remain here until he releases me and gives me leave to go. Don't you love that? Isn't that powerful? That I must stay a prophet called me here, and I'll stay here until he tells me it's time to go. And then Spencer J. Elder Condy said, said it this way, 
Elder Charles C. Rich, Mormon general, Western frontiersman, apostle of the Lord and prisoner of Jesus Christ, died 19 years later in the Bear Lake Valley at Paris, Idaho, on November the 17th, 1883. He claimed the blessings of the Book of Mormon promised to those who would yield their hearts unto God. You know, by way of testimony, I'm grateful for living prophets. Many, many blessings have come into my life and the life of my wife and our children because we have chosen to follow prophets. And I'm not saying that we've been perfect, but what I am saying is that following prophets in a crazy world has brought a lot of peace, has brought a lot of love and a lot of happiness. I don't know how we would have ever raised teenagers, and we have eight children, without the counsel and the teachings of living prophets to guide us. And although that wasn't always easy to raise them that way, I know that it was worth it and it made a huge difference in their lives. And I look at where my children are today, and I'm grateful to look back on the counsel that came from prophets that rested upon their hearts and their minds and their souls and that made a difference in their lives. I am grateful for living prophets today for myself. I find great peace and comfort in their words and in their teachings. I try not to start off a day without listening to their counsel from General Conference or studying their words on printed page. It makes all the difference in my life. It brings peace to my soul. And I leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.